This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, since COVID, we've been hearing more about burnout than ever before. Doctors, nurses, teachers, paramedics. So many are saying, we're done, we're burnt out. But do we actually understand burnout fully? Because one of Australia's leading mental health experts thinks we might be missing a few things. So we're going to be talking about that soon, how to recognise burnout, how to deal with it. Also, is anyone else freaking out a bit about all those UFOs getting shot down by the US military, or is it just me? We're going to find out what's going on there. First, though. Hack. I'm in disbelief that this announcement came through, and I can call Australia permanent home. Yeah, I'm, I'm very emotional, and it's unreal. On Triple Jack. You know, if you've fled a war-torn country or persecution, setting up a new life in Australia would seem like a dream. For thousands of people who made it to Australia by boat, they probably thought they were starting a new life of certainty. But the truth is, so many people have actually spent the past decade in limbo. These refugees have been on what's called temporary protection visas. They're not sure how long they'll be able to stay here. They've been able to work and pay taxes, but not able to get things like a student loan to study or other support. Well, the government's now saying these refugees can apply to stay in Australia permanently. It does only apply to those who came to Australia before 2013, but it means they will now be able to work towards getting full Australian citizenship. It's a huge announcement. But it's also started this political fight because the opposition's worried that the government's decision might encourage people smugglers to bring more people here by boat. April McLennan explains. When it's we going to feel peace and safe and settle in Australia and, like, wanted to call this our home, you know, that, that give us safe and give us the value of being human being, give us the rights to speak up, you know, I can't do all the things other people can do. It's been a long wait for 29-year-old Varshni Jakeman. For the past decade, she's wanted to call Australia home after fleeing war in Sri Lanka. Today, that wait is finally over. And you, you waited to hear this news for 10 years. And um, I just like, I just went, my brain just went quiet. And, and then I just come back and, okay, it's happening. Like, you know, it's, it's happened. People who came here by boat when the coalition was in power were given temporary protection visas, which stopped them from becoming Australian citizens. Labor promised to change that during the election, and today they have. Because of the changes, people on these visas and safe haven enterprise visas can now apply to transition to a permanent resolution of status visa. And the people granted these new visas will have the same rights and benefits as every other permanent resident. They'll be eligible for social security payments, access to the NDIS and higher education assistance, something Vashni is really looking forward to really wanted to study but because of previous visa I couldn't able to um, uh, go I had to pay my own fee for the study and I don't I don't have that capacity to pay my own fee um, or go to uni my sister is affected by spina bifida and she wouldn't able to get any NDA support for her or any support to help her with it. So we really struggle with that situation. They'll also be able to apply to become citizens once they meet necessary requirements and will be able to sponsor family members to come to Australia. This change is truly monumental in the lives of people who are on temporary protection and share visas as they can now 
get on with and rebuild their lives, see their family and have the permanency and safety that they deserve. That's Jana Favero. She's the Director of Advocacy and Campaigns at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Jana's pretty stoked with the visa decision. We're really happy with all of the conditions once someone does that, get that permanency because it, it's the permanency that is the thing that will give safety and enable people to be able to rebuild their lives. The government's warned it's not a green light to people smugglers, saying anyone who tries to come to Australia by boat without a proper visa won't be allowed in. And the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, says the government will continue to be tough on borders without being weak on humanity. Australia's operations sovereign borders policy architecture remains unchanged. We've continued to operate uh, on that basis. What we have done, though, is to not leave people in limbo who have been in Australia for a decade or more. Do you remember when the former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd had a bit of a tinker with the immigration policy? Yeah, well, thousands of asylum seekers jumped in boats trying to make it to Australia. The opposition leader back then, Tony Abbott, politically weaponised this. And as you can imagine, the Albanese government's pretty eager to avoid a repeat of this whole situation. But the Shadow Home Affairs Minister, Karen Andrews, reckons they've seen about one boat a month intercepted while trying to enter Australian waters since Labor's been in government. Now, I remember watching the stories of people being plucked out of the, the water where their boats um, had basically disintegrated. And I really wonder if the ministers responsible spoke to the officials who were out there day after day picking bodies out of the water. Because if they haven't, they should have, because that may well have affected um, how they decided they were going to be deal with border security here in Australia. The government says politicisation of this issue is only going to aid people smugglers. They say if you're trying to come here without a valid visa, you'll either be placed in offshore detention or turned back. And only people who arrived in the country before Operation Sovereign Borders started in 2013 will be eligible to apply for this new visa. But despite all this, the Shadow Minister says people smugglers are pretty keen to test the waters. The people smugglers will be able to use that piece of information to say, look, it started. It started and then and this will just continue. So they will be able to convince people that it is worth the risk. And that is particularly concerning. For Varshni, she's just excited to finally be able to participate in further education so she can work towards her dream job. Yes, I am very keen to study. I wanted to study. That's my um, biggest um, thing I had to be. I have to hold a degree and I, I love to be psychologist one day. So that's my uh, passion to be a psycho psychologist. So I am ready to go <laughs> once I got my papers. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that story. And hey, we did invite the Immigration Minister on hack. He wasn't available to speak with us today. Do want to get into this a bit more though now. We've got Paul Power with us. And Paul is the CEO of the Refugee Council of Australia. Hey, Paul, thanks for joining us on hack. Thank you for inviting me. We, we just heard from Varshni there, and I'm sure you've been hearing from a lot of refugees yourself over the past day since this announcement's been made. What are they telling you? I imagine it's probably a mixture. You've got people who are really excited about the prospects of them and others who are probably saying, this doesn't affect me. 
Yeah, well, no, I think there's pretty widespread uh, joy um, because of the numbers of people who will um, benefit from this decision. So it's um, more than 19,500 people are on temporary protection and safe haven enterprise visas at the moment. Um, and even people who are excluded from this announcement are happy for those who, who will get permanency. I mean, obviously, there are quite a number of people in different situations um, who unfortunately won't benefit, um, but certainly the largest group of people um, who came to Australia by boat and whose um, permanency hasn't yet been decided will actually benefit um, from the decision announced today. So does it mean that temporary protection visas are done then, that they won't be granted anymore? Uh, that's actually um, a question that needs a little further um, investigation. Um it's, it certainly means that the people who are currently on temporary protection visas um, will have the um, the opportunity to, or in fact, in, in, or in, well, I think probably in every case, um, will have the opportunity to, to move to a permanent visa. But um, the temporary protection policy also does apply to small numbers of people who are um, refused entry at uh, airports because their visa is regarded as not valid. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, the numbers are, are small and I, that's just, I suppose, one small question that we actually have to um, investigate further. Um, but, I mean, in, in the great majority of cases, uh, well, in fact, basically everyone who's on a temporary protection visa or safe haven enterprise visa now, will have access to this uh, resolution of status visa. This, um, you know, system of uh, processing refugees, asylum seekers, people who may not know a lot about it can find it really confusing because policies change sure. and there's been a lot of change over the, um, you know, over the decades, over the years that there have been different governments. Can you explain the fast-track visa process? Because I've been seeing a lot of concern about this today. What What is it? What's the issue there? Yeah, well, when temporary protection was reintroduced um, in 2014-2015 um, by the Havoc government, um, it actually applied to people who uh, had arrived before um, refugees arriving by boat were being sent to Nauru and PNG never to be allowed to enter Australia. So it was the group of people who had arrived before July 2013 who hadn't had a, had arrived by boat and hadn't had a decision on their um their protection visa and basically the, the Abbott government said we're not going to give permanent protection to um, anyone who arrived by boat to seek asylum um, and those so basically it, it related to a group of people who are already in the country um, so sort of a, a finite group um, but what they came up with was a system where the access to administrative review of a negative decision was much more restricted than it was for any any other person seeking uh, refugee protection, ironically, even more restricted than the, those who are actually seeking, um, who, who are having their assessment done in Nauru and, and Manus Island. Um, so, uh, yeah, it basically very much limited people's opportunity to um, give additional information or further explanation as to why uh, their initial negative decision should be overturned. And so the, the concern has always been that people were not given um, a, a fair go and that um, negative decisions, um, you know, were, were much harder to get uh, overturned under this system, which certainly in, in its initial stages, um, the assessments were being done by 
uh, public servants who are in the same department as the original decision makers. Wow. So basically, people reviewing their colleagues yeah. and their decisions. So, so the the big question is going is you know what is will happen to um, several thousand people you know who who've been rejected, um, who are still in the country and are from countries where the um, well, particularly countries where conditions have worsened since they've had a negative decision. And if you think of the situation in Afghanistan, in Myanmar, and also in Iran, um, conditions have worsened significantly over the past uh, two years. Um, and quite a number of people who may have been rejected, you know, back in 2016 or 2017, right. um, in line with conditions then, um, w would actually be at much more risk if they were sent home now than they would have been um, if they were sent home several years ago. So right. the, the question is going to be what happens to, the, to those people. And, and in fact, and basically, it appears as though each person will have to uh, put in a request to the minister and ask him to intervene in each individual case. Well, we'll definitely be keeping across that. Uh, we know that you will be speaking to uh, many refugees over the weeks ahead as they figure out what all this means for them. Paul Power from the Refugee Council of Australia, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. No worries. Thanks, Dave. And someone on the text line says, a friend of mine who is Sri Lankan and came by boat, married an Australian woman, had three kids but still hasn't been given... Australian citizenship. We've been speaking with refugees uh, who've been talking to us on Hack for years about their frustrations, about wanting some, you know, certainty about living in Australia. For some of them, this is really good news. Hack. An unidentified object uh, entered unlawfully Canadian airspace. It represented a reasonable threat to civilian aircraft, so I gave the order to take it down. On Triple J. So the first one, hmm. The second one, interesting. Third, okay, this is a little bit wild. The fourth, what's going on and how do you communicate with aliens? You've probably been seeing quite a bit in the news over the past few days about the US military shooting down real-life UFOs, un un unidentified flying objects. Hard word to say, that's why we say UFOs, right? Remember the Chinese spy balloon we spoke about a week ago? That was one. But the others, what were they and should we be more concerned? Well, China is now saying it's actually spotted something strange near one of its naval bases. Hey, if you've got some insider intel, can you let me know? What do you reckon these things are? And does it freak you out a bit? If you don't know, message in 0439 Want to ask someone who can give us a bit of detail. Dr Malcolm Davies is a senior analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and he's with us. G'day, Malcolm. Thanks for coming on Hack. My pleasure. A lot of us are very convinced it's aliens. What do you think these UFOs are? It's not aliens. Okay? <laughs> no, uh, look, no. I was looking forward to that, actually. <laughs> yeah. Look, there's an old saying, which is the simplest explanation is usually the truth. Okay? Uh, now, the, the most complex, unlikely explanation here is that somehow these are alien craft that have travelled thousands of light years to Earth to spy on us, and somehow... In spite of all that technology, they're easy to shoot down by uh, earthly uh, fighter aircraft. I think that's almost impossible to imagine. The most simplest explanation is that these are terrestrial-based built uh, craft used for gathering intelligence. And there's no evidence whatsoever that these have any sort of extraterrestrial connection. 
So do you think the authorities know exactly what they are already? Like, I'm just wondering why it's taking so long for confirmation when it's been days for some of these. Look, I, I, I think that, you know, obviously the first one was a Chinese spy balloon. I think everyone understood that. It was gathering intelligence. So quite rightly, the US shot it down. Uh, the subsequent ones, the one in Alaska, the one over northern Canada, and now today uh, one over the Great Lakes uh, are smaller craft. They're not spy balloons. They're something else. Uh, but they're operating at an altitude that would pose a hazard to commercial air traffic. So I think the Biden administration quite rightly ordered them to be shot down. Uh, also, I think there's a political dimension to this. Uh, the Biden administration has... Um, uh, sort of suffered a lot of political attack because of its delay in shooting down the Chinese spy balloon. So they're probably being uh, proactive with these ones. But I, I think it's it's almost it's it's ninety nine point nine nine percent certain that these things are earthly in origin. They're not aliens. Okay. All right. Well, uh, there's something that we've learned today. I wonder, Malcolm. You know, China has said in regards to the spy balloon. We covered this a bit last week. They said, look, it was a massive overreaction. Obviously, it was an accident that it strayed off course. It was a civilian aircraft. Um, the US shouldn't have shot it down. Was it an overreaction, or is that something that's quite normal for a country to shoot? down something if they if they don't know what it is look it wasn't a civilian aircraft that strayed off course it was a chinese spy balloon that was equipped with a range of sensor systems to undertake signals and electronic intelligence over sensitive u.s military sites uh the u.s did the right thing in shooting it down once it exited u.s um, airspace and was over the ocean where it could be shot down safely as opposed to endangering life on this on the ground um, I do think that it was unfortunate that the US acted so late in the day. It could have shot the thing down over the Aleutian Islands, for example, rather than shooting it down uh, after it had transited the US. But this was, uh, it was not an overreaction on the part of the US. It did the right thing to shoot this thing down. And it's now gathering uh, the remnants of that spy balloon to learn as much as it can from it. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Dr Malcolm Davies from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute about all these UFOs that are being shot down by the US military. Malcolm, what do you make of these comments from Chinese authorities that they're saying they have also spotted a mystery object near a naval base recently? Do you think there's much truth to that? And do you think China would be cooperating with US authorities? Uh, well, they're not going to be cooperating with U.S. authorities. That's very clear. The, uh, the, the Chinese are refusing to talk to the Americans on this. Um, as for this object over, I think it's uh, Qingdao, uh, I haven't heard any details about it. Uh, there was a tweet suggesting that the Chinese were going to shoot it down, but I've heard nothing since. So whether it's a genuine thing or whether it's someone on the Twitter sphere saying that this is happening is another thing entirely. But look, I, I think that if there was an object over a Chinese base, uh, as with the US, the Chinese would be justified in shooting it down. It's, 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 if, if you invade someone's airspace, uh, then you have the right to, to defend your airspace. Do you think the US authorities are likely to give us a lot more details in the days and weeks ahead? Is that something that usually happens in a case like this? I think they have to because there's a lot of you know in, uh, intrigue and interest in this and obviously... The whole aliens UFO angle thing is is adding to that, and I think that there was a statement by a U.S. general today which didn't help in terms of him saying, "Oh, we can't rule out aliens." That was a dumb statement to make. 
um, because it just will fan the flames of, of UFO mania. But um, I, I think that uh, there, sh there will, will need to be some sort of coherent formal statement on what these things are. There is the, uh, an office that's now been established in the Pentagon to investigate uh, unexplained aerial phenomena or UAPs, which is what the US government is now calling UFOs. Uh, and uh, because because these things are appearing on a fairly regular basis, they have been observing U.S. military activities, and, and now uh, I think that because the U.S. military have uh, changed their sensor capabilities to track them more effectively, we'll see them more often, and so we'll be able to investigate them more effectively. What do you think the likelihood is of some major diplomatic blowout from this, more exaggerated than what we've seen before? Oh, look, this certainly won't help. I mean, what China did with the spy balloon was an incredibly provocative act. In effect, it violated US airspace blatantly. We have an intelligence gathering system uh, that, trans uh, that transited across the US, including over large numbers of nuclear missile silos and launch control centers. So, you know, that was an incredibly provocative act on the part of Beijing. The US had to react to that. I think uh, uh, Secretary of State Blinken did the right thing by deferring any uh, trip to Beijing. And it's a question of how the relationship evolves in uh, coming days and weeks as to to what extent there can be any further dialogue um, before, for the next few months. But the, the Chinese did the wrong thing by sending that spy balloon across. The UAPs subsequently are an unknown. We don't know where they come from or who's controlling them. Uh, but, you know, the, the US-China relationship has suffered damage as a result. Oh, well, we appreciate your insights into all this and for, you know, clearing things up a little because I did see the comments of them saying, look, we can't rule out the UF, the aliens, the UFOs. And I thought, oh, I'm not feeling too comfortable about this. But Dr. Malcolm Davies, I knew you'd have some answers. Thank you very much for joining us on Hack. My pleasure. We've got some messages on the text line. Someone says, James in Bunjalung country, they decommissioned the shit out of that thing. Another person says, I've been taken by aliens before. They probed me. I'm fine. And someone else says, what's scary is they may have been there the entire time. Hack. We know that it's important for people to be able to disconnect from work. We also know that some professions have much higher rates of stress and burnout than others. On Triple J. Burnouts. A lot of us have experienced it. When you get to that point of exhaustion, mental, physical, emotional, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you're going through it right now. If you've ever experienced burnout, how'd you get through? Did it take a long time to realise that you were suffering burnout? Let me know. You can message in 0439757555. We talk a lot more about burnout these days, especially post-COVID. Like there was even this discussion about whether that's why Jacinda Ardern called it quits as PM of New Zealand. She said she didn't have enough left in the tank and people were speculating what exactly that meant. We're all looking at burnout wrong though, maybe. That's what one leader in the mental health space is saying because we might be defining it in a bit of a way that's not too accurate. Also, that might be affecting how we deal with burnout. His name's Professor Gordon Parker. He's the head of UNSW's School of Psychiatry and he also started the Black Dog Institute, which investigates mental health. Professor Power, thanks so much for coming on Hack. That's fine, Dave. 
The World Health Organisation says burnout is a syndrome resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. It's pretty specific there in that definition. Why do you think that it doesn't really hit the mark, that definition? Uh, Well, they also um, define it as a condition, not a psychiatric disorder, that has three key symptoms and That has also been a definition that uh, was initiated by an American psychologist some 40 years ago. And the three symptoms are exhaustion, secondly, a loss of empathy, uh, which is sometimes called compassion fatigue, and thirdly, decreased work performance. Um, So it's a fairly narrow definition with just three symptoms. And of course, one of them, decreased work performance, may not be a symptom, but it may be a consequence of the first two. So our research has given a big tick to exhaustion. Secondly, um, the symptom of loss of empathy, um, we've extended that a bit. Basically, people with burnout are more likely to report a general lack of feeling tone. Nothing much gives them uh, pleasure, and they therefore... Uh, feel this lack of joy de vie. So it's not just a lack of empathy. It's much broader than that. Thirdly, there's a very important component to burnout, and that's cognitive impairment. And that goes way back into early descriptions of burnout in the ancient days. Um, In 400 AD, uh, burnout was called a chidia and one of the cardinal sins at the time. And cognitive impairment is extremely common in those with burnout and women that have had children will say it's very similar to baby brain. So people say that they just can't remember things, they can't register information. And there's another component where people become very insular. They they tend to keep to themselves and they're social. So they may not join people for lunch, their colleagues, they may just go off and sit by themselves. And so we, we have a broader definition of the symptoms, but in addition Uh, People with burnout are highly likely to report an increase in anxiety and depression. They are very likely to report insomnia, despite the fact that they are exhausted. And they're quite likely to report a whole set of physical problems. So people with severe burnout can have their blood pressure drop to the floor. They can have very fast pulse rate and end up in emergency departments. Um, People will just be unable to get out of bed for days or even weeks. Uh, People... A fall to the floor, so Arianne Huffington of Huffington Post fame, when she developed burnout, she fell to the floor hitting her head on a a table. So that's an extension of the general definition. But in addition to that, most people who've focused on burnout have said that the individual doesn't bring anything to the table. It's all due to work uh, factors. What we've found in our research that, in fact, there is a personality contribution, and that is that there's an unfair component of the burnout story, and that is burnout is much more likely to be experienced by good people. That's people interesting. People are caring, caring, diligent, loyal, reliable, if not perfectionistic. And that goes a strong way to explaining why burnout is overrepresented in health professionals, teachers, veterinarians, clergy, and others. And so we, we have what's called a diathesis stress model, which basically says it's not just symptoms, but there is a personality predisposition in, in 
play. There's another thing with burnout where there's this view out there that if you are burnt out, it's your fault. It's because you haven't dealt with something properly, maybe. Is that, you know, just a misconception that we've all got? I don't think that's a strong view uh, because so many people are quite prepared to say that they've got burnout. They feel comfortable about it as against having they had depression or something else because I think there's a general community awareness and respect for burnout that it's a real thing. Uh, doctors, the data are fairly impressive. At any one stage, 30% of doctors have burnout and over their lifetime, 60% have it. And, of course, during COVID when we've seen, you know, hospital staff working under incredible conditions. Um, if they were to say burnout, I imagine that you know, a great majority, if not yeah. uh, 100%, would, would feel some empathy for them. So by and large, it doesn't engender uh, critical comments. Right. Okay. Well, look, it's a, a thing that uh, so many of our listeners have experienced. We're hearing from a lot of people now. Someone says, I had to quit my job to get through my burnout. It was a very toxic workplace. Another person says, burnout as an ICU nurse. I felt revived after a patient with a good outcome, but the deaths still weigh on you. Look, it's it's a really interesting um, discussion around what is burnout, how we define it. There's a whole article on this if you want to learn more and, and maybe you want to learn how you can deal with it properly because there's lots of um, things you can do to make yourself feel better. You can go check that out. It's on the ABC News website. Thank you very much to Professor Gordon Parker speaking with us there. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'm going to be away for the next couple of days. So Tim Shepherd from Triple J Breakfast is going to be stepping in. Make him welcome. I'll catch you at the end of the week. See you then.